You are listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today Tom sits down with author and entrepreneur Sunil Gupta to discuss his new book, Backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. Sunil Gupta is the co-founder of RISE and teaches innovation on faculty at Harvard University. Using the seven steps inside his book, Sunil went from being the face of failure for the New York Times to being the new face of innovation for the New York Stock Exchange. His ideas have been backed by many venture firms, and Sunil also serves as an emissary for gross national happiness between the United States and the Kingdom of Bataan. Let's listen in as Tom and Sunil discuss failure, the ability to get people to believe in you, and gross national happiness. Sunil Gupta, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. It's great to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to have you on. Um, congratulations on your book, Backable. It's uh, a terrific book. We look forward to diving in. But but first, um, Sunil, you've had um, a wonderful, interesting uh, career, even more varied than my own. Um, you you've been up. You've written uh, uh, policy, public policy. You wrote for MTV. You led product for Mozilla and Groupon. You started a, a medical mobile app company and, and uh, sold it. And then you jumped to the other side of the table and spent some time in venture. Um, you've, had a, you've been a, a visiting scholar at Harvard. And, but maybe my favorite is uh, that with a, an appointment from Bhutan, you co-founded the Gross National Happiness Center in America. Uh, r- really cool career. Well, thanks, Tom. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's pretzel twisted. It, it's, it's scattered, but I've always sort of considered myself to be a little more of a, an archaeologist than an architect. Yeah, so I, I never sort of had a blueprint and, and I never had a building to build. I, I just kind of went after things I really thought were interesting and, and, uh, and stayed focused on them for, you know, uh, as, long as, as long as they kept my attention. Um, uh, uh, you've had a so many varied opportunities to uh, to make pitches to different audiences, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that today. But um, I'd love to spend a couple minutes just talking about um, the gross national happiness. You know, as a if anybody that listens to the business news every day, um, we really frequently talk about uh, GDP, and GDP is such a bad measure uh, of of social. Uh, and even economic progress. And uh, again, what, what interested you in better measures of, uh, of uh, societal progress? Yeah, I mean, Tom, I think you and I kind of come from similar backgrounds where, where we, we both kind of come from technical, sort of uh, you know, worked in technical fields. And, you know, for me, working in product development, you know, metrics are very important. How, how do you actually measure what it is that you're actually building? And, you know, as somebody who, who also uh, is very interested in public policy, I, I started to kind of bring those two patterns of thinking together as to, you know, how we, how we measure ourselves is ultimately going to be a big indicator of what kind of policy we, we, we put to bear. Like, we'll, and, and, you know, uh, Bhutan was really interesting for me because while an imperfect country, just like any other, the way they measure progress is based on what they call gross national happiness, where economic growth is is important, but it is it is one factor 
that rolls up to a whole to, to a whole much larger theme around the happiness of, of their people. And and so I had a chance to to, to visit the country and, and and just became really enamored with with I think this this idea of a north star around happiness. And one of the things that was really interesting to me, and there were a couple I could, I could go on this I could go on about this for a long time, but I'll tell you one thing that really sort of stood out to me. Um, was when I had a chance to spend time with the researchers out there, people who are, who are the ones who are collecting all of this data and sort of computing this, this metric. One of the things that, that I asked them was when you go town to town and you talk to people, is there, a, is there a question, is there one question that you could ask that ultimately will give you a sense, a pretty good indicator at least, of how happy somebody is? And they said, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. And the question is, if you were in real trouble today, who could you call and know with 100% certainty they, they would be there for you? And they believe that having an answer to that question, having a clear answer to that question is a, is a pretty good indicator of someone's happiness. But there's a twist. And the twist is, whose list are you on? Mm. Who can call you? And know with 100% certainty, you are going to be there for them. And ultimately, it's not a straight line. It's a, it's a circle. It's a community. You know, and in some ways, it tells us, I think, what we already sort of deep down already know, which is that we are social creatures and we, we thrive off of, of being part of communities. And what was really interesting is even as I wrote this book, Backable, I realized that every backable person tended to have a circle around them. So, you know, a group of people that they had kept for the long term in their lives and nurtured those relationships in order to become a better version of who they are. Well, we, we appreciate your, uh, your advocacy for better measures of progress. So you mentioned backable, um, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. Um, it's the best book that we've seen on pitching, on how to try to sell uh, yourself and your ideas. Um, and as I observed a minute ago, Sunil, you've, you've had uh, a chance to make a lot of pitches in a lot of different settings. And I guess at a, at a high level, what what'd you learn uh, about the art of pitching? Yeah, you know, I mean, Tom, I think you can come at a book from one of two points of view. I think either you come at it from the point of view of having a solution, or you come at it from the point of view of having a problem. I certainly came at this book from the point of view of having a problem. So yeah, while I had been pitching in sort of these different areas, I wasn't having much luck. And, you know, I was certainly not the type of person who could walk into a room and, you know, get people to rally around me. Um, you know, and I, I think we all sort of know that creativity and persuasion are two different skills. You can, you can have a great idea and you could, you could have a great, brilliant product. You could be a great candidate for a job. Then you could still be dismissed. And I felt like I was one of those people. And so what, what, that all kind of got me thinking about backable people, people who tend to sort of have this mysterious it quality where they're able to walk into a room and we really want to, we really want to, they take a chance on them. We really want to get behind them. And, and, and the key is that oftentimes when they're not the obvious choice or they don't have a fully baked idea, we still feel compelled to want to, to want to bet on them. And I wanted to understand like, what is this it quality? Then could it be learned? And 
what I realized now uh, through five years of researching this topic is that A, it very much can be learned. And the reason for that is because if you rewind the if you rewind the clock on, on nearly every backable person's career, what you find is a very different version of them. They're actually not very backable. They learn how to become that way. But I also realized that being backable is not just for celebrities and it's not just for CEOs. It's really for all of us. Any type of change that we're trying to create in our lives, in our careers, in our communities, uh, in our companies, we need, we need other people to come along. That could be hiring managers, that could be partners, that could be clients, that could be even friends and family. There's not a single situation where, where we're not trying to, I think, rally other people to join us in, in what we believe. Well, I love how you observed that it's, it, uh, as you said, it's not really about charisma or connections. It's not about your resume. It's very specifically about being able to persuade others uh, to bet on you, to back you, to, to take a chance on you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and 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 it, and it's not always what we think it's going to be that that makes people take that chance. Because again, a, a lot of times these stories were not that person had the obvious choice, or they were they had the had the best resume or best pedigree. It was more kind of like there was something emotional that happened inside the room. There was a moment that was created. Yeah. And as I and as I started to kind of just unpack this, one of the things I thought I was going to find was I thought that backable people were going to have a certain style of communication. They were going to make use of eye contact and hand gestures and pacing, but but I I realized that that really wasn't the case. I mean, you certainly had some backable people who were much more sort of Dale Carnegie esque and Toastmasters esque, but I would say the majority that I that I studied were not, and a lot of them were shy, a lot of them were introverted. They didn't have the classic communication styles. And, and a really good example, just a quick example of it, is if you go look up the number one most popular TED Talk of all time, what you'll find is, is, is a talk given by Sir Ken Robinson. And you might be surprised that it's actually a very un-TED-like presentation. He sort of has one hand in his pocket. He's got a slouch. He sort of meanders on and off script, but it's a brilliant talk. What I realized over time is that it's not, it's not charisma that makes someone convincing. It's conviction backable people take the time to convince themselves first. And then they let that conviction shine through whatever style it is that feels most natural. Your, your book does this beautiful job of outlining um, seven lessons that you've learned. And I think that's the first one, right? That, uh, that you, you, you have to start with yourself. If you're not convinced that uh, people will see that right away. Yeah. Um, number number two is super interesting, and I want you to unpack this for me. It's put yourself in a story that makes your case memorable. Yep. Yep. Why? Why and how do you do that? Yeah, I think we do it through what we call in the book a central character, casting a central character. And and what what we I'll tell you a quick story, and then and we'll we'll get into like how to how to actually do that. So when I was pitching my company, my startup, which again was being rejected by every investor that I was pitching, what it was was it, it was a one on one health coaching startup. So what what we did is we matched you with a a personal nutrition coach right over your mobile phone. And one of the people that I was really interested in pitching was Tim Ferriss, author, and he invests he invests in tech companies as well. And he had just written the Four Hour Body, and I thought to myself, Gosh, this would be the perfect investor. 
And so um, I end up getting a chance to pitch him. And uh, the way that you, the way that that pitch sort of unfolded was I spent probably the first 50 to 70% of that pitch really talking about the market, talking about how big it was. I talked about the climbing rates of obesity and hypertension and diabetes. And then finally, at the end, I, I told a story. And the story that I told was about my father, who in his 40s had a triple bypass surgery, an emergency triple bypass surgery. And I remember going to the hospital. I was maybe like nine years old, the University of Michigan hospital where your dad was and Tom. And, and you know, I, I, I showed up and I, I realized that like I saw a version of my father that seemed like it had, it had aged 25 years overnight. And I remember leaving the hospital, they gave us a few pieces of paper. And one of the pieces of paper was like lifestyle change. Hmm. And it said things like eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. You know, we, I mean, we didn't, we didn't eat broccoli. We didn't eat Brussels sprouts. We, we, ate, we ate Indian food. We're an Indian family. And so, and there was nothing on that, on that sheet about, you know, chicken tikka masala. And, and so, and so, you know, lucky for us, insurance helped pay for the time of a nutritionist who really helped customize our lifestyle and made it fit, made it, made it something that would actually stick. And I, I believe my father is still alive today because of that. And so I tell this story to Tim Ferriss and he's like, what are you doing leaving that story to the very end of the pitch? He's like, talk about that first. Tell that story first. And the story that he told me was that when he was pitching the four hour work week, his book, his first book, he was denied by 25 publishers in a row. He got a piece of advice that you were trying to write this book for a mass market. What if instead you wrote it for one person, just pick one person, right? And write it for them. What would happen? And what he found is his writing got so much sharper. The storytelling got so much better. Publishers ate it up and it became a mega bestseller. So- so when I, when I took his advice and I flipped it and I started talking about my dad's story first, my central character story first, then talk about the numbers, then talk about the market size and how many millions of people out there are living their own version of my father's story. It completely changed the way that investors were responding. That's, uh, that's a great story and a great example. Um, number six is... Uh, you can't just wing it, that you have to practice and you have to adjust based on feedback uh, from practice. So yeah, I, I, I guess you, um, you've learned that practice matters, right? I learned that practice matters. In the book, what, what we, I, call, I call these exhibition matches, um, which are, are low stakes practice sessions before these high stakes moments. And what I, what I found is that, you know, oftentimes we'll see people in a room and we're like, my gosh, that person's really good. Like they're really naturally talented. What I found is that in the most, in most cases, that's actually the product of lots and lots of behind the scenes practice. And that practice that those practice sessions, they actually don't look very good. I've sat in on a bunch of them and they don't look very good. They're actually pretty sloppy and there are a lot of mistakes, but I think that backable people tend to sort of have a mentality. And that is that long-term success comes from short-term embarrassment. But if you're going to embarrass yourself, you might as well embarrass yourself in these low stakes situations 
with friends, with family, with, with, you know, with partners that are, that, that aren't the key one that you're trying to, you're trying to close. And so they set up these exhibition matches and they set up a lot of them on average, Backable people play about 21 exhibition matches before a key interview or a key presentation or a key pitch, 21 practice sessions. And I thought to myself, that seems like overkill because my biggest worry was if you practice something 21 times, isn't, isn't that going to make you sound not natural? Isn't that going to make you sound robotic inside a room? But what I found is that the opposite is true. When you have such a high level of mastery and comfort with your material, you're no longer attached to the script and you're no longer, you're no longer running through it in your head when you're in the room. Instead, what you can do is you can be fully tuned in to exactly what's happening with the people who are with you. You can be fully adaptive to their facial expressions, to their nonverbal cues. And, and it's, you know, one of the things to realize is that backable moments are very rarely created in these monologue situations. You don't get in the room recite your resume and leave. You don't get in a room, give a pitch and then leave. What happens is that there's, there's a Q&A, there's a back and forth and your ability to be very, very present in those moments, to be very adaptive in the mo- those moments tend to be what ends up leading to backing. And so, and so it makes you more natural and not less. So Neil, I've been um, sitting here thinking about uh, the fact that most people start pitching with no formal preparation. Uh, it, it's very easy to go through high school and college yeah. and never get any preparation uh, for selling yourself or selling your company or selling a product or an idea. Uh, do, do you have thoughts about sort of where and how we could do a better job in high school and college of, of making people more backable? You know, it's, 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 it's a really great question. And, and, you know, we just launched the book a week ago and what's been probably the, the, the most, I think, inspiring pieces of feedback that I've gotten have been, Hey, I'm giving this to my kid. I'm giving this to, you know, my, my nine-year-old. Um, and I want them to learn this right now because this is what I wish I had. Um, and, and, and I do think we can do a better job. And I, and, I, and I think, you know, what I've realized again is that it goes, it goes beyond sort of teaching the, the sort of surface level techniques of, of the hand gestures and the eye contact. It goes, it goes deeper than that. It goes into, you know, taking the time to believe in an idea and, ta- you know, taking the time, for example, just to, you know, spend time not only thinking about whether your idea fits the market, but whether your idea actually fits you. Is this something you want to do? I remember when I was leaving, I worked, I spent years at a company called Groupon. And when I was leaving, when I was leaving Groupon, my whole, my whole mindset was focused on e-commerce and I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So what I did is I, I listed all the ideas I had and I went to a mentor of mine and I shared with her this list of ideas for companies. And she looks at the list and then she looks at me and she says, which of these ideas really makes you come alive? And I look back at the list and I realize none of them really did. None of them really made me come alive. Intellectually, I felt like they all had some market potential, but none of them really made me like tick. None of them really made me come alive. And that's when I started to shift into healthcare because healthcare is what really made me come alive. 
And the story that she shared with me that I would share with any high school classroom or grade school classroom is that when Martin Luther King was trying to decide whether or not to step into his leadership role, he went to go see a mentor. And he told his mentor, you know, I think that this movement was, is, is going to be very, very good for the world. And Howard Thurman, his mentor, said to him, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive. Because what, more, what the world needs is more people who have come alive. And so I, I think that, you know, we need to spend as much time thinking about whether something makes sense for the market or for the company or for, you know, a strategic career. We need to spend as much time thinking about whether it really makes sense for us. Does it really make us, does it really make us tick? Janil, I think I'd, um, I'd like to encourage all the teachers and uh, school leaders to make backable the textbook for junior English. I think if you just get rid of get rid of that English textbook, use Backable uh, as your junior uh, textbook. You you would be doing a great service to the next generation. You you just think about what happens during your junior and senior year when you're starting to make your case, uh, trying to figure out where you're going to go to college, and you're trying to write that essay, and you're you're trying to land. Um, a work-based learning opportunity, maybe your first job, um, maybe an, an internship, all of those cases where you're just beginning to uh, to uh, be backable um, and you're almost doing it with no preparation. So I think backable would be a terrific uh, junior English textbook. What do you think of that idea? Oh, I love that idea. I love that idea. <laughs> you and I could co-teach in a, a, you know, a class in a high school. I would love, love that too. No, it's a it's a terrific book. Um, the the point I want to make is that um, this is not just a book for people that are seeking venture capital. Um, every almost everybody um, is involved every year in in some way um, in making a pitch, making a pitch for themselves, for their company. Uh, for their uh, a cause that they care about, uh, and and we think everybody could benefit by uh, by reading Backable. Wanted to pop in and share a tool we've been hearing teachers rave about and have used and loved ourselves called Screencastify. This screen recording and video editing tool is designed to be easy to use for educators at any skill level and for students of any age. Whether you're brand new or a seasoned video creator, you'll find that Screencastify is the most powerful yet most simple to use screen recording solution available. With over 100 million videos made in 2020, it's likely that some of your district teams are already using Screencastify. Regardless of whether your learning is remote, hybrid, or in-person, asynchronous video is one of the most powerful tools a teacher and learner can have. Learn more about Screencastify and start recording today at screencastify.com slash getting smart, or click the link in the show notes or this episode's blog. One more question for you is that you've had this interesting career where you, you've had to keep learning. Um, and I, I wonder if you could share a, a tip with us about how you focus your learning and how you learn uh, productively. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I, you're making me think of a, a little game that I play with my daughter every morning. She's in second grade. And I, and I ask her two questions. I ask her, what is the meaning of life? 
And she says, to find your gift. And I say, well, then what is the purpose of life? And she says, to give it away. And it's all based on this, this quote from Picasso, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. And I think that backable is all about sort of how do we, how do we give our gift away? Um, and I think that learning has so much to do with that because what we're trying to do is we're trying to sort of go deeper and deeper into a craft, like something that we feel like is our, is our, is our gift. And, you know, the, the, the way that I sort of think about this is, is that, you know, learning typically doesn't come in big, big, big waves. It's I, I, what I have found learning comes, comes through consistency through sitting down and, you know, really consistently applying yourself to something. And the, 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 the lesson that I think has been sort of, or the biggest mindset shift for me has been when I stopped thinking about life, like a to-do list. And I started to think about life as a to-learn list. Mm. Even with Backable, this is my first book. If, if I, if, if my goal was that I wanted to write a best-selling book, I don't know, Tom, if I ever would have finished it because, because the pressure on that would have been so high and it would have been about something other than sitting down and writing every day. But instead, I decided that I wanted to learn how to become a better writer. That was my goal. I want to learn how to become a better writer. And it was that with that to learn mindset, I was able to sit down and do the work consistently every day, every morning I'd sit down and I'd write for at least an hour. And, and that's how I got the book done. Um, so I, I think shifting from this to do mindset to a to learn mindset, I think is the key. Uh, we love that. Um, we've been talking to Sunil Gupta. Uh, congratulations on backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people Take a chance on you. It's a great book. Go get it. Uh, everybody can benefit from it. Sunil, thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks again for having me on, Tom. A big thanks to Sunil for joining us on this week's episode. We love to highlight unconventional pathways and stories and think this conversation is great for students, educators, and parents alike. For more information on building momentum and venture funding, check out episode 302, Kim Smith on creating schools, companies, and the Pahara Institute. We'll be sure to put a link in the show notes and on the blog. All right, that's it for today, listeners. But before you go, be sure to hit subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off. <laughs>